So do you want to start by just saying who you are? Like your name and one line. Like what I do kind of thing. I'm Nadia Rafai and I'm an artist, an arts worker, one of the current co-chairs of Constance Ari and a member of um, the newly formed Tasmanian Palestine Advocacy Network or TPAN. My name's Alex. I'm a filmmaker and impact producer and political organiser. I'm based on Jajawarang country in so-called Victoria and I've always worked at the intersection between media, art and activism. So I've been involved in grassroots television and community media, um, community engaged theatre and independent documentary films for about 25 years. Who am I? I'm Dr Amy Spears. I'm currently a Vice-Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow at RMIT University School of Art. I haven't actually made art for what's getting up to a few years now, maybe maybe four years. So it's interesting to kind of think about what art can do in this context of not making art. I have been doing lots of kinds of thing, academic-related things, writing about arts, thinking about arts, and supporting other kind of artists to make things. I have been thinking, why did I pause making art? And I think one of the things I've been grappling with in, in my research currently is you know, what are our responsibilities as settlers, non-Indigenous people, particularly in my case, a white settler person, in the context of kind of ongoing colonial violence and genocide or genocidal project in Australia, a kind of colonial project that's from the very beginning been based off the uh, elimination and disappearance of the First Peoples of this country. My current Research is basically looking at very directly about what non-Indigenous artists can do in the face of colonial violence and denial and, uh, you know, what are our, our responsibilities to things like decolonisation and truth-telling. I'm Pip Stafford and I'm an artist, researcher, audio producer and future lawyer. For this, my last episode of What Are You Looking At podcast I've interviewed Nadia Rafai, Alex Kelly, and Amy Spears, and I've asked them, optimistically, what can art do? Ursula Le Guin said, We live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable, but then so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, very often in our art, the art of words. So when I ask, what can art do? What am I asking? recently doing one of those Instagram doom scrolls. You know the ones where you watch a reel and a reel and a reel and a reel and it's like horror mixed with advertising and you can't get out. This sound is me trying to replicate the sound of that. Except I never have my sound on while I'm doing it. Because it's usually just too much. Anyway, I'm doing that instead of doing something productive. Hey, 
And then I came across something that made me stop and think. I want you to know, though, that this section took me so long to record because I kept picking up my phone to double-check my sources and get names right and find the audio I wanted. And I kept getting stuck in these scrolling doom holes. Anyway, it's kind of beside the point. So I stopped initially because I saw a post that was reposted by artist Hayley Miller-Baker. It was an Insta story by writer, activist and academic Dr Zoe Samadzi. Instagram handle babywasu, B-A-B-Y-W-A-S-U. She was writing about the art forum boycott and the way that art world money, especially the commercial art world, is deeply embedded in colonisation and arms trading and other very difficult relationships. And how artists at a certain level are often depoliticized because as they can't become more successful, these relationships become more important and the protection of them and of careers and livelihoods becomes at the expense of their activism. She writes, Art does not matter if every ounce of political lifeblood can be excised from it to satisfy a political needs of people who traffic solely in the idea that art can exist in an oxygenless vacuum away from political struggle, engagements of anti-blackness and other colonial economics of artificialized value. Art does not have to and should not exist to be overdetermined by these regimes of violence. We can make and write and dream and be otherwise. I was really struck by that optimistic end, as it's so easy to fall into the trap of feeling impotent in the face of great crises. And I know a lot of artists do feel that way, what can I do? Or what should I do? What's the right thing to do? And the online discourse is so focused on policing the actions or perceived lack of actions of others. And sometimes, like me, you might just end up scrolling. So I thought, that's my last podcast episode theme. I want to ask... What is it that art does do? What are the possibilities for artists to contribute to meaningful change in this beautiful, but frankly fucked up world? Now I'm largely going to let these three incredibly smart people speak for themselves. This is Alex Kelly. When I um, work with artists and filmmakers, sometimes I'm frustrated about the lack of sort of political strategy for how people release their materials into the world, especially when they've made really incredible projects that are really engaged with ideas and I want them to be engaging with social movements more. And then when I'm working in social movements and I'm doing political organising, sometimes I find myself wishing there was more art and culture mixed up in the politics. So that's part of why I sit at the intersection because I think both are so critically important. I work a lot as what's called an impact producer. So that's about designing the release strategies for cultural projects so that when a film or a book or a theatre show or a podcast is released into the world, it connects with the movements that are working on that issue in the world. And part of that, I think, is about recognising that um, it's not necessarily art and films on their own that change the world. It's social movements and political organisation 
but social movements and political organisation requires information and ideas and inspiration and sense-making and meaning-making, and that's the work of artists. And I suppose when I think about this, there's a part of me that is always a little bit cautious because I'm not necessarily wanting to tell artists to go and do work that makes audiences go and do X, Y, Z. Like I'm not talking about just instrumentalizing art and making art make people do a thing to have an outcome because all of a sudden if that's the way that we approach art, um, that's a very neoliberal and capitalist kind of way of approaching it. Like, oh, art's only valuable if it does something. So therefore art has to change the world to do a thing. That's not exactly what I mean. It's actually more nuanced than that because I think what one of the things that is really important about what art does is not just give us information and meaning and sense making but is also um, to touch on things that are beyond that which can be made profitable or made commodifiable and be pinned down and be exact like the spaces of uncertainty that artists have to occupy in their process of making art And the difference between an artist's intention and an audience's reception of their ideas and the way in which audiences then move in their lives with those ideas inside them, all of those things sit in a kind of more unpredictable and more uncertain place than a lot of the ways in which we normally move through the world. That's a long bit of philosophy about art, but I think it's really important because when we're talking about art and change, we're not, yeah, we're not just talking about art as a tool that does a thing. We're talking about art as a process that opens up other possibilities. That is, you know, it's something I think about a lot, like what can art do? What is the point of art? And can it do anything? And I kind of, I mean, most of the time I feel pretty, like, hopeful and positive about art's ability to tell stories and reflect the world around us. And I think that's something that's really powerful and necessary. In terms of my own personal practice as an artist, it's really hard to think about it as anything but political because I'm an Arab-Australian, I'm Muslim, my family is Syrian, my dad's side of the family, and our identities are inherently political in this country and in this time. And so if I'm making work about that has anything to do with my identity or my heritage, which is a lot of the work that I do make because, you know, it's, that's the life that I live and that's the lens through which I move through the world. The work I make can't be anything but political because our identities are. And so, yeah, I I don't even know what it would look like to try and depoliticize that. And that's not something I would ever want to do. How would I even, if I'm telling stories about my family and where I'm from, how would I tell those stories without being political? The reality that my family lives has been shaped by politics and imperialism and colonialism and Western powers and all of these things. And it's inextricably all linked together. You know... I feel like oftentimes art institutions want to engage with artists who represent various identities, but it feels oftentimes that that relationship is exploitative and they want to tell stories that belong to marginalised communities while also depoliticising them or stripping them of their lifeblood and all of the richness that those stories represent.
I've just recently been awarded a DECRA, so a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award that starts next year to think about these, these kind of ideas deeply for the next three years. But effectively, what I'm trying to do is identify that there is a yearning and there's a desire amongst non-Indigenous people to contribute. So I guess telling like a kind of truer, more fuller picture of Australia's history and thinking about the kind of effects of colonial violence. So, yeah, I guess in that, that kind of thinking about what art can do, I, I do genuinely believe art can it disclose kind of settler violence and, um, and also the spaces where, you know, settler histories have been silent about that violence. But I guess more broadly actually kind of contribute to a, a kind of a project around anti-racism and producing decolonial futures. I've been working on a book for the last... Ooh, it's been a while, five years, um, with Jen Greaves, who's a Waramai researcher, filmmaker, amazing person, all-rounder. We've been collecting a series of texts by largely First Nations artists and writers, but also non-Indigenous writers, decolonial scholars, who are all kind of reflecting upon truth-telling through creative practice. So this idea that we can actually present these stories about colonial violence through artistic practice. One of the contributors is Fiona Foley. We've got Julie Goff involved. There's Vicky Cousins. So an extraordinary kind of range of kind of artists who are addressing colonial violence. But also I think, and this is Jen's project, Jen Graves talks a lot about how, you know, on top of exposing stories of colonial atrocity, these artists, particularly First Nations artists, are also engaged in reinvigorating um, First Peoples culture and reclaiming space and producing the opportunities for sharing Indigenous stories and Indigenous knowledges. So, yeah, it's been a really amazing project working on that. It gives me kind of a much better grounding on how First Peoples use art to change the story of this nation and how how important that activity is because our nation has been so insidious at um, silencing First Peoples' voices and First Peoples' histories. One of the projects that I've worked on for almost eight years now and we're just at sort of the the tail end of a really amazing process was that I worked as one of the impact producers on the documentary film In My Blood It Runs which tells the story of a young Aboriginal boy Arundagarawa man now who lives on Arunda country, Duan Husson, and it was made with Maya Newell and that documentary film was a beautiful observational documentary about the ways in which the different worlds that Dewan moves through and the different kind of um, authorities and structures that he's faced with in schools and with police in Alice Springs in Mabantua. The impact campaign, so the strategy that we we created to release that film was um, designed with Dewan and his family and they identified a whole number of things that they wanted to do with that film. They were to to address racism, to look at issues around juvenile justice and to look at First Nations education in schools and autonomous First Nations-led education programs. So obviously one film can't change racism in Australia, but having anti-racism as a framework for all of the different processes and um, partnerships that we engage in with the rollout of that film was a really big um, part of that impact campaign. And one of the things that was really interesting about how that film was received by different audiences is that often First Nations audiences would watch that film and they would really identify with the experience that Duan had in schoolrooms, often with white teachers who were paternalistic or patronising, didn't understand his language and culture didn't value those. Whereas non-Indigenous audiences would watch the film and think that we'd somehow captured like one bad apple, like one bad teacher, rather than recognising the structural and systemic um, reasons why we have teachers that are going out into classrooms that 
can't actually provide cultural safety to young First Nations people. And so that those kind of um, depth of thinking through like who are the audiences, plural, and how are they reading material and what do they need to, to make changes in their world. So we made a lot of um, different kinds of materials for different teachers. We um, In schools, we worked a lot with people on raising the age of criminal responsibility. Dewan went to Geneva and was the youngest person ever to address the UNHCR, the Human Rights Council Commission in Geneva. And we know that in those seven years of rolling out that film, we didn't end racism. We actually haven't raised the age of criminal responsibility in every state. We haven't completely changed everything about the education curriculum and standards for teachers and teaching education in this on this continent but we've contributed to change. And we see that that that's a big piece of this as well. It's like one single project isn't gonna do everything. And in fact, thinking about it in that way doesn't help us. We have to see our work as part of an ecology and a part of an ecosystem of different cultural projects and different political projects. So I got involved with TPAN because Palestinian liberation is an issue that's really close to my heart and it's a struggle that also implicates the rest of the region, particularly countries in the Levant, which is where my family's from. I mean, every Arab kid will tell you that they're raised on this issue and as a community, we all feel like really strongly about it. So when this group formed, I immediately wanted to get involved. It kind of followed the first couple of weeks of bombing and violence um, that Israel was perpetuating against Gaza. But for those first couple of weeks, I was actually on a residency, an artist residency in Nam as part of hyphenated projects. The violence coincided with the beginning of the residency. And so that question of you know, is art important right now was at the forefront of my mind. I was there to think about my practice, to work on my practice and and immerse myself in it. But it was so hard to do that because my mind was just, was taken up every day, all day by thoughts of what was happening in Palestine and what is happening in Palestine. So it was very reflective in a way I was really grateful to be there because I had space to actually think about what was going on and to really feel my feelings about it. I spent a lot of time reflecting on what is needed during this time. And in conversation with, with who is part of Hyphenated Projects, we decided that it would be really nice on my last night to invite all the artists and amazing people that I'd met during the residency to a dinner at the house. The biggest thing I think for me artistically as well that came out of that residency was my relationships with people and community and the importance of that and not necessarily like art and creativity and ideas as they're tied to materiality but more like for me at least in how they are how they take form in relationships and community building and collectivism the most valuable thing that came out of that was my conversations with people so I wanted to do something at the end of the residency and the thing that made the most sense to me was just a gathering with people that I'd met to share food and conversation and stories and just be together and feel that collective support. And I saw that as an outcome to the residency. We we had it after the rally, so we all went to the rally and then everyone came back to the house and we shared a meal. And when I reflected on that dinner and in my conversations with Fung, we spoke about the fact that like going to these events and protests and stuff it's a really heightened space. It, there's a lot of feelings and emotions, and sometimes it feels like there's nowhere where for those emotions to go. It left me thinking that having space for community who, or people who just feel like-minded, and especially in 
terms of this situation where there is still a lot of like fear in talking about it and a lot of people like might not have you know their regular support networks there might be friction there or people you know don't want to maybe they don't feel the same way people still see this issue as controversial and so I know a lot of people can't rely on their normal relationships of support and friendship and family and stuff I came back home and I wanted to propose an idea to Constance for us to respond in some way to what's going on. I floated the idea of a statement, but it felt like a statement without any action backing it up was like without any tangible action. It's just not that useful. So what I proposed to the others was that we present a series of post-rally gatherings, which would just be a space for people attending the rallies or, or even, you know, just people beyond that to come together and learn about anti-colonial struggle and the Palestinian liberation movement through what we do best at Constance, which is creative gatherings. And that, that idea really did come out of the, the dinner we had during my residency, kind of like an extended form of that. I, I really wanted it to be like a responsive space that would change and evolve with the needs of the community and with the wants of the community. So the intention behind the project was to just literally provide that physical space for connection. So far we've had some film, like short film screenings, we've had food, we've had a panel discussion that was really much more casual than that. It was all of us sitting on the floor just talking and people from the audience jumping in and telling stories and asking questions, which was amazing. And the other thing, the other intention was to both promote deeper understanding of the situation, specifically in Palestine currently, but also how it connects to anti-colonial struggle in this country and across the world. These are the kinds of phrases you hear a lot about the anti-colonial struggle and decolonization of spaces. But what does that mean to decolonize? And what can we do? It can feel difficult to know, especially uh, as a white settler living on stolen land in Australia. But also, this is something that's occurred across the world. Many countries are a sort of concertina of colonization. So how, as artists and arts workers and producers, do we begin to even unpick that? In conversations I've been having a lot lately, Aboriginal people, um, First Peoples, um, have encountered an awful huge amount of um, labour, what, what sometimes is known as cultural load, but also I've seen recently being called colonial load. So their jobs are often, you know, you, you've got your kind of job, title and role, but then you're also on top of your kind of job, ordinary job, expected to kind of explain racism to people, explain colonial history to people, do anti-racism work within your workplace. So, you know, in that sense, um, First Peoples, Indigenous people have this huge amount of load placed upon them to kind of undo all this colonial structures. Meanwhile, as I kind of mentioned before, they're also very busy their own responsibilities to um, to revitalize culture and to reconnect with country and to build community and take care of you know their own mob. My land and these scholars sort of address this idea that Aboriginal people have a huge amount of responsibility and what is it that kind of white settler people can do to kind of take some of that responsibility and load off Aboriginal people. My friend who's an artist, George Criddle, um, during their PhD, they did this work out at WA on their own family history. They discovered that the Criddles were early settlers to a place called Geraldton. 
uh, a place um, named by colonizers as Geraldton. George discovered that there were also participants in an early massacre of Yamaji people in, um, on Yamaji country. Their art practice during their PhD was about trying to reveal these stories and share them with their family. And they go through different kind of strategies like taking their family on a cultural tour that's led by a, a Yamaji elder where they go to the kind of site of the massacre. But they also wrote up this kind of critical settler history and they launched it quite recently to share this story of the Criddles. I guess that sort of work is about working on their own family, but then also kind of the broader settler community around their family at, in disclosing these kind of ways that their own family history has evaded and avoided this story of the massacre and their complicity in murdering Yamaji people. And so, you know, thinking about how art practice might be able to do that is kind of interesting. In my own practice, I guess, during my PhD, I did this project called Miranda Must Go, and that project was about Hanging Rock and the fact that Hanging Rock is more well-known about that story of Picnic and Hanging Rock and those white girls going missing, and this is a fiction, as opposed to kind of real losses and traumas that occurred to the Wurundjeri, Tungarong and Jarrah people's who were the original inhabitants of that region and, and what happened to them when settlers arrived. This is a project I did in 2017. It was launched on social media in January 2017 and within four hours of it, its launch on Facebook, I had every news outlet in the country trying to interview me. It continues to have impact. It, uh, I must confess the project website is down and doesn't exist for the time being, but we're about to relaunch it. But even still, there's people still manage to find the campaign and this idea that Miranda must go and they get in touch with me. Most recently, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, some lighting design lecturer at that institution got in touch with me and he said, oh, our students are putting on a production of Picnic and Hanging Rock, but they want to know more about the first people's history of Hanging Rock. Would you would you give them, you know, a guest lecture, which I did. Word got around that I was going to present. And so it wasn't just the lighting design students. It was the actors, the director, the head of the school all turned up. And after seeing what I had to say, they ended up deciding that they would do an acknowledgement at the beginning of the play. And even though that's a very small, potentially tokenistic change to their plans, even just by acknowledging the First Peoples of Hanging Rock, it sort of starts to rectify the way that the Picnic at Hanging Rock story has tried to overwrite their presence. So, you know, that gesture is happening in London as we speak. And, you know, I it's, it's hard to say what kind of impact these sorts of things do, but I think it does help to educate people and shift consciousness and then maybe produce a desire, and this is the, the argument we're trying to write up in our article, produce a desire in settlers to know more about their history and then potentially the hope is to create a, a desire and an openness and a receptivity for First People's accounts of that history. I mean, there's a saying like change is slow until it's fast and sometimes we do arrive in um, what some organizers call the moments of the whirlwind when there's a huge uptake and engagement and acceleration of possibility and we've been seeing that um, in recent months with the movement in solidarity with Palestine and sometimes when change is fast People think they need to come up with a plan, but often there's already a plan, you know, like Palestinian liberation movements have existed for decades and they already have the boycott divestment sanctions movement. They already have, you know, amazing, powerful poetry, songs, music, speaking of the art and culture. Um, and it's for us to learn about those histories and amplify them and, and follow them. And so when there's these moments of the whirlwind where change is fast and feels possible and right now, you know, because it needs to be to save lives, like the stakes couldn't be higher, there often are people who have been doing that deep work for a long time and when you talk about that policy gap, 
the gap is when policymakers are not speaking to people with lived experience and expertise. But if we can have really well-connected movements that recognise where um, that expertise lies and consistently amplify those with lived experience, like with Dewan and his family on In My Blood It Runs or other projects I've worked on or now with the um, movement of Solidarity with Palestine, we don't need other experts. We need experts with lived experience who already have the solutions because they've been thinking about this for a long time. We've been talking a lot about doing, but also what about not doing? Is there power in silence? On the one hand, silence is a negative, a nothing, a less than something. Silence is complicity and silence is fear. But on the other hand, silence, refusal, withdrawal of labour can be very powerful. And sometimes it's up to those of us who are privileged enough to do the withdrawing, the refusal, and to be silent when others with lived experience are speaking. Artists are also workers. We can refuse, we can be silent, we can withdraw our labour. We can ask that the institutions that represent us operate in different ways. We can demand that they do certain things. It doesn't mean they'll listen, but the demand itself is powerful, especially if we share it with others. Um, we can join our union, the MEAA. We can, um, there's, we can turn up on the streets. We can support people. We can make work. We can donate profits from our work. You know, there are anything that you can think of but there's no, there's no single way that art can change the world. There's infinite ways that art can change the world. It's just important that we keep showing up. We are in a cost of living crisis. We live in capitalism. We're told we need to be productive all the time and we're thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And it's do, 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 you know. And certainly um, not just in terms of, the political act of refusal or silence or withdrawal, but also whose voices are we listening to? Like at certain times we can use our voices and platforms to amplify the voices of others and, and sometimes we need to speak and sometimes we need to listen and not to have like nuanced and reflective ways of thinking about that rather than just being caught in the trap of productivity is is also part of what, is what change making is, I think. But again, too much silence is problematic. And there is something to be said about repetition. Repetition of action and words may just lead to change. I'm thinking about Sarah Ahmed and the way she talks about how, like, you know, it hasn't become rote amongst students in universities to point out whiteness for instance, or understand whiteness's impacts. And so you have to kind of keep pointing out every time whiteness occurs or racism occurs and you repeat it, chip, chip, chip away, keep pointing out where it occurs and by kind of naming it, you then are able to kind of confront it. And I'm I'm thinking that that's one of the things that art can do is it points out it, evidence of silences or of, racism or of you know whiteness of dominance but it does it in a way that might affect people and and agitate and animate and also the thing that I've been thinking a lot is some affect theorists like Lauren Bellant and Anchek Kovic talk about public feelings a commons of feelings or something like that and that you know, art isn't a privatised experience. What I think about sometimes is that when I was at Hanging Rock and I, before I produced the Miranda Must Go campaign, I interviewed a lot of people and a lot of people who kind of lived in the area as well as visitors to Hanging Rock. And one of the things I found, particularly amongst the white settler people, is that they would often say, they'd often admit to a kind of niggling feeling that they didn't know anything about Indigenous people or their culture or what happened to them during settlement, that they didn't know enough and they 
didn't understand that history very well. And they felt kind of guilty about it, but it was a kind of private guilt. And the, the, the shame kind of met, stopped them from sharing that feeling with their friends, right? But when the campaign came out, it produced an opportunity for everyone to talk about that niggling feeling, right, that, that they had a kind of sense and an anxiety about the fact that they didn't know anything. So it became a collective feeling, a public feeling, one that was shared. And also by kind of sharing that feeling, you could no longer continue pretending that that feeling didn't exist, that it was there and it was a collective feeling and actually it needed to be addressed. Okay, so what can art do? I mean, like, you know, people go to, to, there's university courses to define what art is and there's university, you know, courses on what is change and how does it happen. And so really there's myriad, there's infinite ways that art can be engaged in change making and and in social movements and some of that ranges from what people might call cake decorating you know we can make protests look better we can design we can make puppets we can weave we can make flags and banners and we can make music and poetry that is you know we can we can embroider the gates on weapons factories you know we can be right at that point of intervention or we can be doing that reflective sense making work that is a way in which culture reflects back the times to people and it helps us understand and make sense of it. It can help us to grieve coming back to the present moment around Palestine. I'm sure that millions and millions of people have been reading poetry by Palestinian people and crying. These are gifts that artists can offer each other. I think art can do a lot of things. I think when I, when I feel, what's the word? What's the opposite of hopeful? What is that word? Despair. Yeah, despair. When I feel despair about what art can do or what the point is of even being an artist in times like this, I guess that despair comes from me putting expectations on myself and my practice and what that looks like in a conventional sense of art as it exists within like let's say an institution or a white box gallery or you know these kind of conventional kind of colonial spaces but I feel like when you break it down art is so much more than that and to me art is storytelling and so when I think about what art can do I think art allows us to imagine a different and better world and I think art can do so much if we are willing and open to thinking about even art as something that can look different. If if art is something that is allowed to, if art if reflects the world around us, which I think it does and it should, then I think the way art looks should also change and evolve with what we need it to do. I think of that dinner that we shared during my residency as art. You know, it might not seem like it in a conventional sense, but I think it had all the elements of what I want art to include or I want art to communicate. From that perspective, I think art can do so much. It can bring people together. It can tell stories. It can respond to what we need in times of crisis and it can give us tools for navigating the world through those crises and it can give us a reason to want to keep resisting. I think art can can give us hope and when I talk about art I'm talking about it outside of colonial frameworks and like commercial and commodified frameworks. 
In thinking through what these sorts of interventions might be able to do, the way we've been conceptualising it for this article is around the idea that we are making artworks primarily to help settler communities understand the pervasiveness and the repeated nature of of the way that violence is silenced. (laughs) So, for instance, at Hanging Rock, one of my discoveries when I was doing the kind of research down there was that the interpretation centre at the foot of Hanging Rock dedicates the majority of interpretation space to this story of white girls going missing. And, you know, it there's a lot of enjoyment in repeating and reaffirming the story. There's, you know, a kind of plaster diorama dedicated to the picnic story. There's an audiovisual display. There's multiple panels that all kind of give the impression that this story is potentially true and that those white girls did go missing and it is designed to produce a kind of a effect in the in the visitor that those poor girls have gone missing and they all go up to the top of hanging rock as a consequence and they cry out for the the key missing girl Miranda but there was only a couple of panels in this interpretation center that talked about who the first peoples were and what happened to them during settlement and there is only one paragraph dedicated to the cataclysmic impact of colonial invasion and it talks very cursorily about smallpox outbreaks um and you know the kind of devastating impact of on the population as a consequence of these introduced diseases and then very very kind of with no feeling or heart or av display or you know plaster diorama it talks about settlers was that conflict with pastoralists means that uh, first peoples removed missions, and it it doesn't it doesn't sort of talk to how um, devastating the, this kind of you know invasion was for first peoples. And so I guess it was thinking about that and thinking about how there's absolute like the flat affect of reporting on colonization's impact on Aboriginal people was like, okay, so art has a space here. We can come in and we can actually produce feeling and and kind of produce collective attention and feeling to this idea that we have not thought about Hanging Rock's first peoples and what happened to them during settlement and that these are the real losses and traumas of that site as opposed to these stupid fictional white girls who go missing. And I guess that's that's when I realised there was a possibility there for art to kind of have an intervention. So I made this campaign. It was called hashtag Miranda Must Go and it just called upon the settler population to kind of relinquish their attachment to um, the missing schoolgirls and um, confront the kind of true stories of dispossession and um, violence that had occurred in the region as a as a consequence of colonialization, I think that's where art is useful. Is it it can collectivize people around these sorts of issues in ways that are affecting, in ways that communicate to a broad range of people. You know, I'm thinking academic journal articles aren't going to speak to a wide range of people, but an artwork like Miranda Must Go does, and it translates these kind of quite complicated information in a way that kind of affects and touches people. So, yeah, I guess I think art can do something and it can kind of produce spaces for people to think otherwise in a collective way. I think one of the reasons we're in such a messy world is because particularly Western colonial thought is about measuring, understanding, controlling, extracting, and actually anything that enables us to break out of those kind of limited and siloed ways of approaching life gives us the potential of thinking in more liberated ways. to finish with the words of poet Diane de Prima, Revolutionary Letter Number 8. 
No one way works. It will take all of us shoving at the thing from all sides to bring it down. I'm Pip Stafford and this has been What Are You Looking At for Contemporary Art Tasmania. Thank you to Alex Kelly, Nadia Rafai and Amy Spears. I'll be putting links to their work and the work of others mentioned in this episode in the show notes. I'd like to take this last opportunity to thank you for listening and for your feedback. Since pitching it in Kat's boardroom as Catcast, which, by the way, I think was actually a brilliant and underappreciated play on words, using both the current and past acronyms for the organisation. The podcast, now known as What Are You Looking At, has had somewhere in the vicinity of 80,000 listeners. I've learned so much making it, and I've been fortunate to interview some very interesting, very intelligent, and sometimes very funny artists, thinkers, arts workers, researchers, scientists, loads of people. I want to thank particularly Bryony Kidd, Thea Connell, Brendan Walls, and Lisa Campbell-Smith for their important contributions and collaboration. And thank you to CAT staff and board for supporting this project. As always, you can find the full archive of What Are You Looking At? at contemporaryarttasmania.org and all good podcast apps. If you'd like to hear more sound work by me, currently and in the future, you'll find me playing with sound at makeanddo.art and radioqueens.art. Bye for now. Thank you.